0: This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. As mourners across the UK prepare for the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, the longest-serving monarch in British history, reactions to her death have varied dramatically. There are tears from supporters of the monarchy, and fans of royalty who have eagerly consumed media that humanized the royals. But there are jeers from the subjects of former British colonies and their descendants who see the Queen as a symbol of acquiescence to empire at best, or an active sympathizer of imperial crimes at worst. My guest is Rahul Mahajan. He's the author of two books on the Iraq War, Full Spectrum Dominance, U.S. Power in Iraq and Beyond, and The New Crusade, America's War on Terrorism. He also teaches at University of Wisconsin River Falls, and he is the U.S. Foreign Policy and Empire Correspondent for Rising Up. Welcome back to the program, Rahul.
1: Great to be with you again, Sonali.
0: So, uh, you know, it was sort of hard to see all of the Social media posts remarking and, first of all, mourning for a 96-year-old woman who died peacefully of natural causes. A lot of people expressing a lot of sadness. And then just kind of uh, sympathizing with the the grace and elegance with which she led the British monarchy. That grated against my nerves, considering what the empire stood for. I imagine it grated against yours. Um, Any thoughts briefly on the response to the queen's death and how it's varied?
1: Well, yes, I think the the fulsome praise you get from a lot of circles or the claims that somehow Britain is now lost and without a rudder are silly and annoying. And um, the idea that somehow she reigned in uh, stately grace over a mostly benevolent British presence in the world, uh, in particular over a uh, British Empire that was, of course, in the process of dissolution during her reign is—it uh, just has very little basis in fact. But I guess mostly it, it, it's amazing to me that it's—it's uh, it's made into such a big deal one way or the other, considering the largely ceremonial role of the British monarch these days.
0: These days, for sure. But the woman herself, when she first ascended to the throne, um, spent numerous years overseeing a still active empire, right? She was the monarch for 70 plus years. And even if one can say today the monarchy has devolved into a largely symbolic enterprise, she as an individual had at least some responsibility, don't you think, especially about Uh, for for some of the crimes that were committed in Kenya, the country where she was first notified that she became queen.
1: Well, the the way it works is that the the monarch meets with the prime minister regularly and is able to communicate his or her opinion on events any which way they want. Uh, And of course, they also have a little bit of an advantage in the sense that, especially with someone like Elizabeth, they have uh, represent a certain continuity while the prime minister uh, changes from one person to another, one party to another. Um, that said, it, it is it is uh, purely an advisory role and it, it's, it's a little bit difficult to imagine, although it would be a counterfactual, exactly how much uh, the monarch uh, uh, could uh, directly affect uh, a major decision that uh, the British government is bent on taking. That said, of course, she could have said something about the atrocities in Kenya, the more than a million uh, Kikuyu rounded up into concentration camps, treated brutally with uh, uh, torture, starvation, rape, forced labor, and lots of killing. Um, she probably didn't would not have had very much to say about uh about the end of empire in india um she apparently did have a few things to say uh about apartheid and here uh this is what everybody reports that she did not like the fact that margaret thatcher was uh quite so pro-apartheid as she and reagan both were uh, which manifested in basically being very much against sanctions, but you, you know she she did not she didn't speak up as far as we know in any serious way at the period of sort of high atrocity of the uh, unwinding of the British Empire. Malaysia, of course, being being another case.
0: Right. The the South Africa case is one that you are seeing being brought up a, a lot as somehow a symbol of her progressiveness or a symbol of the fact that she had a conscience, but all told it seems as though for 70 years she did what she was told to do she did her job which was to smile serenely at the camera wear the jewels and perform some ritualistic uh you know symbol of 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 uh, british ascendancy in spite of the fact that it has now basically lost all of its colonies i mean would you agree that that was that was what she did and she played a part. And yet, of course, because we've had maybe a lot of TV shows in recent years about the royals, that somehow people are mourning uh, the loss of this person and feeling, quote unquote, rudder- rudderless.
1: I, you know, for that very reason, I have great difficulty watching those shows. <laughs> um, first of all, there's some pretense that in the modern royalty that the things they do matter so greatly they don't and as far as i i can tell she was a certainly morally unremarkable person with a job that involved doing extremely unremarkable things and uh you know obviously her figurehead role means a lot to a lot of people in britain uh, uh i find it incomprehensible but i'm not going to tell them they 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 can't feel that way and you know when she made her statement about COVID, it, you know, provided for them a welcome contrast to the idiocy and blustering of a Boris Johnson or a Donald Trump. But that's basically the most you can say for a highly privileged person, uh, given uh, given an opportunity to influence world events in some degree, which she did, had to do nothing to earn, who never uh, did anything particularly remarkable, innovative, or insightful uh, in that regard, who may have spoken against apartheid and who knows possibly because she found Margaret Thatcher annoying in the 1980s when it was becoming more common. I never heard that she said anything uh, about the Sharpeville massacre or about Rhodesia before that. Um, and, you know, I, I guess one one thing I would focus on a little bit more is that, uh, you know, it's a given that uh, that the monarchy is not supposed to affect major policy. It's not supposed to talk politics. The few times she did, like when she uh, said something disparaging about Arthur Scargill during the miners' strike in the 80s, it was a big scandal because you're not supposed to. But one thing, you know, I think that could she could uh, and of course should have done and said something about is the massive uh, the massive uh, royal estate instead when, when, when people when investigators started talking about how much money was tied up in in the property of the royals, uh, not just the queen but but the whole uh, the whole bunch of them, um, she was unhappy about that, she was happiest with figures lowballing them. she never said anything about uh, any moral obligation to return any of that to the victims of colonialism.
0: Right. That's Um, something
1: she could have said and maybe even had some influence in because, uh, at least nominally, uh, a lot of that belonged to her.
0: There are a lot of um, social media posts of all of the jewels that she's pictured wearing. And, uh, you know, of course, it's Always important to, to, to fact check everything once he's on social media. But ostensibly, many of those jewels were the spoils of empire that could have been returned, um, at least as some sort of gesture that to, could have g- even given the monarchy a little bit more legitimacy in a modern society. But she didn't. She didn't, you know, none of those things were returned. And then in her own country, as you point out, uh, the royal family uses unearned privilege and and benefits from unearned privilege and and there is remarkably even though you see a lot of the obituaries lauding her legacy the monarchy as i understand it is not as popular even within britain today as we might imagine it is right younger people don't see the point often of of these royals other than showing us all of the privilege that they they have by virtue of birth. So it seems as though that the monarchy is is losing legitimacy even within England. What do you think? And, and, and Britain in general. And,
1: and, there, and there, you know, Elizabeth played a role that I, I don't know that I would falter for it directly, but uh, I, I think you can make the case that it was a pernicious role. So when she came to the throne, I mean, why did she come to the throne? Because her uncle abdicated. Right. He he married a a formerly a divorced American. A commoner. (laughs) Yeah. And a commoner. He had to abdicate in order to do that. It it so happens that he and his wife were both huge Nazi sympathizers. And, uh, you know, even Elizabeth at the age of seven, there's a picture of her doing a Nazi salute, although I don't think we can blame her for what she did when she was seven. But but stuff like that happened. Her father was not good. At public appearances, uh, smoked too much, died young, and Elizabeth is who is the one who rescued the popularity of the monarchy. The monarchy was in a really good position to fade away Hmm. with uh, with uh, this kind of clowning around, followed by you know the the after World War II the 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 labor victory with a sort of repudiation of uh, of the elitist past that it that certainly it was to many people who who voted for labor for the first time uh, and she uh she rescued it uh, and she somehow managed to keep it afloat as a as a popular thing although of course i think uh diana had a lot to do with that before her own break with it but it, it survived the scandals of of the 90s the death of diana and of course the random harry does a nazi salute uh you know kind of stuff that that uh the younger ones have done and uh right now with uh with uh you know a successor who is a little bit odd and who among other things is apparently uh very bent on uh taking his fortune and investing it in such a way as to make himself as rich as possible but it's not clear what else he's bent on it, it it's a good time for the popularity of this institution uh, to fade away. I mean, it it represents, of course, uh, a, a modest grain on the exchequer. Enough to be noticeable, not not enough to to cripple the country, of course. And but it, it mostly represents uh, uh, a real concession to uh, the idea that uh, some people are just born better and more important than you, and you should look to them.
0: Right. I mean, it just seems so bizarre to hear defenders of the monarchy come up with some, you know, come up with whatever logic they, they need to justify it. And of course, among the defenders of the monarchy are people like Tucker Carlson of Fox News, who is slamming critics of Queen Elizabeth. You know, the woke liberals don't like the fact that uh, she was the last best thing about Britain. I uh, mean He made lots of bizarre comments. And of course, uh, he had some good fodder because there were some folks who said some very cruel things about a person who died. Uh, But you might make a case for why they might be justified in feeling that the the symbol of British imperialism was, one symbol was dying at least. Uh, But there's this, there's this sense here in the United States as well, uh, while most Americans are either ambivalent about the monarchy or they kind of like the idea of it through social, I mean, through pop culture. Then there's this dark strain around the Trumpists who really feel that the United States ought to return or ought to become an authoritarian state. And they like the idea of a potential monarchy rising up. And the Tucker Carlson's are among them. I mean, I know it sounds so far fetched, but these are among the defenders of the queen. And that should tell us something, right?
1: Well, I mean, it's funny because I don't think they like the idea of a constitutional
0: monarchy. Right.
1: Um, I think at this point, it's uh, a lot of this is their version of shock the bourgeoisie. Anything that mm. liberals or rational people or people who know stuff uh, want to say, they want to oppose it. Um, yes, they're very, very pro-authoritarian, and that's why they 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 love Victor Orban uh and would love Xi Jinping if he wasn't on uh the other side and love Vladimir Putin. Um and maybe they're throwing the Queen uh into that box though she uh was certainly not in a position to be an authoritarian ruler. Um but I think it's 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 mostly a, a matter of just uh you know um, contrarianism that which is part of what what this, the whole right wing has uh, has built its brand on. I would say one thing though, which is that, um, so the queen had this funny position. The monarch is the head of state. The prime minister is not. The prime minister is the most powerful person in the country, at least as long as they go through the various forms, but is not the head of state, does not have the massive pageantry about it. I mean, we in this country, we elect a person, or the electors do, who, uh. Is starts out as an ordinary person, but then has, you know, when so far he gets elected, uh, every time he walks into the room, they play a damn song. Yeah. And this person also has power. There's some case to be made for separating this kind of thing and treating a president or whoever you elect as an ordinary person who happens to be in a position of power and not uh instituting this elaborate uh um uh, machinery of deference around them the way we do with the president the way we didn't used to do with the president but you know that's that's a that's a different story and i certainly wouldn't suggest a monarchy as the uh, appropriate uh, alternative model
0: yeah, and, and I'm glad uh, you brought up the Prime Minister as well because Britain has a new Prime Minister. Literally, days ago, days before she died, uh, Queen Elizabeth you know, gave whatever special dispensation she's supposed to give to anoint the, the next uh, Prime Minister of the country. And, and Liz Truss, who was once somebody who was anti-monarchist, she didn't believe that the monarchy had legitimacy and then, of course, turned it around. Uh, she's moving forward with the Conservative agenda, right? Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts. Thoughts on her. Her one think tank just put out uh, an analysis saying that her tax plan and her energy plan is going to give the richest families in the UK twice as much uh, benefit as as the rest. So she's sort of carrying forward the politics of austerity, and she's you know this is where the real power in within Britain at least lies, right?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I you know to the degree that that we had uh, that we had any information about what uh, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss stood for these were the two uh,
0: contenders in the conservative yeah. party
1: yeah. without liking either of them it did seem right from the beginning that Liz Truss was the worst choice uh, uh of the conservatives and um yes i mean the, there's a, there's a you know there's a thing that i sometimes call neoliberal austerity so austerity of course generally means more taxes and less spending but Sometimes things that they call austerity mean more taxes for some people, less taxes for the rich, less spending for some people, more spending for the rich. Not exactly strictly austerity, but it does make uh, the people with the tight belts tighten their belts more. Right.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much, Rahul, for joining us, helping shed some light, uh, first and foremost, on uh, the legacy, such as it was, of Queen Elizabeth II. Thank you, as always, for joining us.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: My guest is Rahul Mahajan, the author of two books on the Iraq War, Full Spectrum Dominance, U.S. Power in Iraq and Beyond, and The New Crusade, America's War on Terrorism. He teaches at the University of Wisconsin River Falls, and he is the U.S. Foreign Policy and Empire Correspondent for this program. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with